0: Welcome to the Weekly Sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And Now, here's this week's message.
1: Good morning, my name is Abigail van Daventer, and I've been a member of Gateway for just over two years now. I have previously served as a kids' church teacher, as well as an edge leader, but I'm currently going to university in Prince George. I will be reading our sermon text for today, which comes from 1 Samuel 24, verse 1 to 12. It reads as this. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the the desert of En-Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. When David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king. When Saul looked back behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the, came, in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on, the, on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Uh, I would love for you, if you haven't done so already, to grab your Bible and find First Samuel chapter 24, as we're going to be marching through that. I always love for you to have your Bible. In front of you. While you're looking for that, I just want to bring you up to speed on David's life since we last saw him a couple of weeks ago. And I think his life up to this point can rightly be described as a series of ups and downs. You might recall with me that when David came on the scene for the first time, the very first time we met him, Samuel shows up at his house unannounced And he anoints him as the future king of Israel. That's pretty good news. But then it seems like for a number of years, David is sent back out into the pasture to tend to sheep into relative obscurity. And he's forgotten about for a number of years. Kind of bad news. But then an opportunity comes along and he defeats the giant Goliath and he becomes a national hero overnight. He marries the king's daughter. He enters into the royal family. He's back at the palace. He's serving the king. A lot of good news. But then things take a turn for the worse when we find out that Saul is an egomaniac and he is after David because he's jealous of him and he wants to destroy his life. Five different times, Saul picks up a spear, and he tries to pin David to the wall. David flees for his life, and Saul decides, I'm going to try to kill David with all of my heart, with all of my strength. If I can do it, I will do it. And then he uses the state-controlled media to try to destroy David's reputation, and then he puts out... Uh, A promise to anyone, if you find David, you bring him to me, either dead or alive, I will richly reward you. And so I think you can agree with me, that's a lot of bad news. And just when you think things are going to turn for the better for David, they kind of do, but they also kind of don't. Here's what I want you to see. In the story we're looking at today, David is presented with the first of three opportunities to vastly improve his circumstances overnight. All he has to do is to reach out and grab it and if he does that he can avoid years of suffering years of pain years of being on the run for his life he can change all those circumstances being out in the wilderness being camped out in a literal cave hiding for his life and he can fast forward to notoriety to fame to power to control he can fast forward to becoming the future king of israel he can do it overnight but there's just one problem One little fly in the ointment. In order for David to do this, he's going to have to disobey God. Now, let me ask you, would you do it? If you could vastly improve your circumstances overnight from being on the run in the face of death experiencing what theologians call the dark night of the soul. Your life is being ripped apart. You could instantly change it to have all of your wildest dreams come true. All you got to do is disobey God. Would you do it? And so here's the question that David is going to have to face today, which I think is a question for all of us. Will you trust God, even in the midst of difficult circumstances to bring about his glory and your good? Will you trust God to do what he says, what he promises he will do, or will you take life into your own hands? Will you be out to control your own life, to dictate your own circumstances so that you can experience maximum happiness and contentedness with respect to your life? What decision are you going to make? So let's pick up on the story here. Look at verse 2 with me. David's on the run. He's hiding in the wilderness. He's literally in not just a metaphorical, but a physical cave. He's hiding for his life with 600 of his trusted confidants, people who are on David's side. And Saul has 3,000 soldiers who are devoted to one thing, finding David and putting him to death. Here's where the story picks up. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel, and he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. That's a Hebrew euphemism for using the bathroom. All right, so he's on his royal throne, you might say. He's going number two. David and his men were far back, In the cave. Now talk about a stroke of good luck, right? I mean, the very man who is after you, who wants to destroy your life, who wants to kill you, he's looking around for you. He just so happens to go into a random cave without any of his 3,000 men and literally he has his pants down. Now's your chance. And so David's soldiers, his men, try to point this out. Look at this. The men said... This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. In other words, David, now's your chance. Now's your chance. Go get him. Go take his life. And if you do that, all the suffering can be over. We can go back to our families, to our spouses, to our kids, to our lives. You can go back toward the throne. And after all, you'd be justified, David. Don't you recall? Samuel, he came and anointed you. You were to be the future king of Israel. God has done this. He put Saul on a silver platter for you. All you got to do is reach out and grab it. Just do it. And then it says this, look at verse 4, then David crept up. Now some of you are reading the ESV translation and if you are, you'll notice it says something a little bit different. It says, then David arose. I prefer that translation because it's highlighting something that we've seen before. Some of you here will recall in week two of the series, we saw Hannah who was being provoked by her rival. And she is weeping and crying because of her barrenness. And then it says, then Hannah arose, indicating decisive action. She's about to take control of her life. We think she's going to go up to Peninnah, her rival, and punch her in the face. But where does she go? She goes to the temple to pray. And so in exactly the same way, the author is showing us this. David arose. We think he's going to do the deed. He's going to follow through on this. He's got the knife in his hand. And then here's what happens. David grabs the knife and then he crept up unnoticed and he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Wait, what? That wasn't the plan. Saul, he's he's laid out on a silver platter for David. All he has to do is grab it and he doesn't do it. Why? Why? Because David understands an important principle for those of us who walk with God. I put it this way in your note sheet. You cannot achieve the purposes of God by breaking the commands of God. You cannot achieve the purposes of God by breaking the commands of God. Another way of saying the same thing. God does not need you to break his laws in order to fulfill his will. The ends do not justify the means. And David, he understands this. And see, I I want you to remember... The purpose of why the books of First and Second Samuel are in your Bible in the first place. Are they just a series of really cool stories and really epic battle scenes that highlight the history of Israel? Well, even though that's true, that's not the main reason why it's in your Bible. It is to showcase to you how and why, if we follow in our own paths, if we do what is right in our own eyes, where that winds up. That's where the book of Judges end. It's where the book of Samuel begins. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. How does that type of thinking and that type of living carry itself out? Where does it always end? And so Samuel is filled with pictures to help us see the outcome of those types of behaviors. And the two pictures for us are Saul and David. Here's Saul. Saul. He's a picture of self-reliance, of self-dependence, and of pride. He puts his trust in himself, and he does what is right in his own eyes. And in contrast to Saul, we have David, and he's a picture of God-reliance. Total dependence on God, not of pride, but of humility. And I shared with you two weeks ago The difference between David and Saul is not their moral track record. We're going to see it. It's going to take us a couple of months to get there. But over the next basically eight weeks, you are going to see David's life disintegrate and to crumble on account of his moral track record. He will outsin Saul. But the difference between these two men is not their moral track record. It is their dependence on God. It's how they treat God. And so, I put it this way, Uh, once again, it's in your note sheet, the difference between Saul and David, which is also the theme of this book, God humbles the proud, that's Saul, and he exalts the humble, that's David. And I find it really interesting to know that it was 1 Samuel chapter 16 when David was anointed as the future king of Israel, but he doesn't become the king Until 2 Samuel chapter 5, more than 15 years later. And in those 15 years, he's doing one of two things. He's living in relative obscurity as a shepherd boy, wondering, are the promises still true? Is God still going to follow through on this? Or worse, he's running for his life at the face of death. 15 years of God, are your promises true? Will you fulfill your promises Will you walk with me or not? Have you been there? Have you been there? Have you experienced what theologians call the dark night of the soul? Where you cry in your room, all the shades are drawn. You're in the darkness. You're crying out to the ceiling. God, do you even hear me? Are you even there? When are you going to show up? When are you going to answer my prayers? I never thought life would turn out this way. I see your promises, and I see my life gap. When are you going to follow through? And that's what David is experiencing in this story. He's held up in a dark cave, and he can't get out. And I'm wondering if some of you are in your own metaphorical dark cave, in your own wilderness. Some of you, looking back at this past year, this past fiscal year, you've lost your job or things didn't turn out for you the way that you expected in your finances or in your business and you're worried about your financial future. Some of you today, you have lost a loved one in 2023 and as we turn the page to 2024, there is still a huge gap, a huge hole in your heart, and you're still wondering, God, why did you let that, my loved one, go? Why did they have to die? Some of you this past year have encountered a relational betrayal. Some of you are experiencing simply The advancing of years and the course of this past year has resulted in a lot of poking and prodding by doctors, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of agony and pain and frustration, a lot of loss of independence. And some of you are even wondering, God, what am I still doing here? When are you going to take me home? What's, What's my purpose in all of this? Why am I experiencing so much pain and heartache? Some of you this past year have been diagnosed with cancer. And you're wondering what the future holds for you. Some of you are experiencing such tremendous agony and heartache and pain, and you're wondering why. That's where David is. And so maybe you're carrying that with you into 2024. Your New Year's resolution isn't, some new diet and exercise program or some new regimen that will improve your life, you're just looking for a refuge from the storm. You just want God to show up and to take it away. You just want God to fulfill the promises in due time because you're so tired of it, of the experiences that you're holding. And so here's something we need to remind ourselves of about the character of God. Scripture says that God is the first to mourn the devastating effects of sin. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, says that God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one to evil. And so that is to say, God is not the author of evil and suffering. And yet, here's something we need to understand that I think most of us would rather forget. We'd rather it not be there in the Bible, but it's there. David is a picture of it. God doesn't author evil. He doesn't author suffering, but he refuses to waste it. God often uses the difficult experiences of our life to bring about his glory and our good. God often uses those difficult circumstances to help grow us into the character of Jesus. And he will turn all of those difficult circumstances into memorials of his grace. But we would rather him take it away. Than promise to walk through it with us in that wilderness. And yet that's the promise. That's the promise. And so my question to you this morning is: is it possible that God might be using your difficult circumstances to bring about his glory and your good? Is that possible? And so here's the way I put it in your note sheet. God uses our wilderness moments to make us into God-shaped people. He doesn't author them, but he uses them. He uses them to make us into God-shaped people. And this is a principle we see in Scripture time and time again. Again, we just don't like it very much. Maybe, maybe the best example of this is when the people of Israel, they leave the slavery of Egypt, and they go out into the freedom of the wilderness. And uh, a couple dozen of us, we had the opportunity this past summer to stand in a spot where you could see on your left the lush, beauty of egypt we saw the nile river we saw the breadbasket of the ancient world it was green it was lush it was beautiful and then on our right we saw the wilderness and it's not like a canadian wilderness lots of trees it's death it is dry nothing lives out there and then when you stand in that spot you are reminded of the controversy of the message of jesus when he says look at egypt Look at the life, look at the lushness, the beauty, the fertility, that's death. Look at the wilderness, there is no water, there is no food, the place of death, but I will be with you, that's life. Do you believe that? And you begin to realize why the people of Israel, when they were presented with these two options, they said, "Mm, let's go back to Egypt, I don't want to go out there. And yet God uses that environment, that place, to create a people who are utterly dependent on God. God uses our wilderness experiences to bring about his glory and our good. That is the promise of God. Is it easy? Is it even desirable? No, of course not. No one wants to experience these things, and yet God uses them. Let me, let me give you a practical example of this. Some of you know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. She is actually 74 years old now. And she has been in a wheelchair for 57 years. After a very tragic accident when she was 17 and she fell on her neck and now she has quadriplegia. And she's been living with that for 57 years. She also has debilitating pain. She has scoliosis, and it has been uh, something that has nagged at her her entire life. Also, she has had not one, but two bouts of cancer. And so her life can rightly be described as a wilderness. And yet, when she was experiencing her second bout of cancer in 2019, this is after many, many years of walking with Jesus, she wrote this. It's very hard to go on. I mean, privately, I've wondered, gee, Lord, is this cancer my ticket to heaven? Because I sure am tired of sitting in a wheelchair. And my body is aching, and I'm so weary. Suffering keeps knocking me off my pedestal of pride. My displaced hip and scoliosis are sheepdogs that constantly snap at my heels driving me down the road of Calvary, where I die to the sins Jesus died for. Sure, I have a long way to go before I am whom God destined me to be in glory, but thankfully, my paralysis keeps pushing me to strive to reach for that heavenly prize. Look at this woman, this sister in the faith, who if we don't meet her on earth, we will see her in glory She's highlighting something for us about the nature of our suffering. That the promise of God isn't necessarily to take our suffering away. It is that he will walk with us in our suffering. He will walk with us in our suffering. And he will use it to bring out his glory and our good. And the question for Johnny, even at the ripe old age of 74, after 57 years, is a one more day of, do I believe it? Do I trust in God's promises today? Will I put my trust in him? Or will I trust in myself? And of course we should not sanitize this woman. We should not sanitize David. And of course she doesn't want to live with this. Of course she doesn't want paralysis. Of course she doesn't want scoliosis. Of course she doesn't want cancer. She doesn't want any of those things. And if given the choice, I'm sure she would say, Nope, I would like my legs back. I would love to have the freedom and the mobility to walk around without any pain, without any suffering. I don't want those things. And yet she puts her trust in God. She trusts in God in the midst of her wilderness moments that he would see her through. And so here's here's what I want to do. I want to get really practical with you for a moment. Because I think this is where the text goes next in this story I want to highlight at least three ways in which we are most tempted to walk away from God and to trust in our own actions, to trust in our own methods, as opposed to continuing to put our trust in God in the midst of our difficult circumstances. And so I think there's like three universal ways this happens. It's not the only way, but there's kind of three realms where this happens. With me, with we, and with God. When I'm tempted all by myself to not put my trust in God... When we are collectively are tempted to do that together and with respect to my relationship with God. With me, with we, and with God. Let's look at these together. The first way is in instances of what I'm calling rationalized revenge. Rationalized revenge. That's when we respond to wrongdoing against us. Let's look at David as the case study. Up to this point, he hasn't done anything wrong. When we first encounter David, we know that Saul, he's overcome with despair, and so this little boy, he comes into the throne, and he plays stringed instruments so that Saul can be relieved of his agony, and then after that, he gets the victory over Goliath the giant, he becomes a national hero, and after that, he serves the kingdom faithfully that's the resume of David and yet even in the midst of his faithfulness how is he rewarded well as i mentioned to you already Saul's an egomaniac he's jealous of David and he wants to destroy his life literally literally he wants to kill him and so here's my question to you does anyone think that David would have been wrong if he picked up the knife in self defense And he just took out Saul. After all, he'd be justified. He was trying to kill me first. He was trying to destroy my life. And I did nothing wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. And yet he showed up at my doorstep. And I had a chance to improve my circumstances. We always feel most justified in instances instances of rationalized revenge. So how does that play out in our lives today? Well, maybe... Your boss is a jerk to you. And so because of that, you're really tempted to undermine him and do sloppy work in your job. Or maybe, just maybe, you cheat on your taxes because after all, you know the government, they're just not really efficient with your money and you could probably use it better. Or maybe, just maybe, you've been gossiped about. Your reputation has been tarnished by someone else and now you have the opportunity to gossip back. Or maybe you've been the victim of slander. And you know what slander is. It's not even true. Your reputation has been dragged through the mud on account of things that aren't even factually true. And now you have the chance to return the favor. Will you do it? Are we not most tempted to do wrong in the midst of the wrongs that have been done against us? And yet, as I share with my children, two wrongs don't make a right. Wickedness begets wickedness. It is a perpetual cycle that never ends. And David understands this principle that even though Saul has done something wrong against me that doesn't justify me to return the favor because I want to put my trust in God, in his justice, in his character, in his will, and I am not going to jump out ahead of God and to try to manipulate and control my life, even when I'm wronged, even when I desire revenge. And so that's the first instance with me is with respect to rationalized revenge. What about with we, with us? Those are instances of what I'm calling peer pressure to compromise. Now look again at your story. Look at the beginning of verse 4. It says, David's men said. They said, David, now's your moment. Seize it. No one would ever, like, deny you this opportunity. He's trying to kill you. Just defend yourself already. Pick up the knife. Everything will be okay. And yet, here's what's really interesting. There are 600 men in that cave with David. They are all trusted confidants. These are all men who would lay down their life for David. David's their guy. That's why they're hiding in a cave. They're not just random people. They are his closest friends and confidants. And they're all saying, pick up the knife. Do this. And if you look down in your Bible at verse 7, take a look at that. It's really interesting. David has to sharply rebuke his men. Not just say, no, we shouldn't do this. It's a putting them in their place to say, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. And if you haven't been in situations like this, you know how uncomfortable it is to be one out of 600 of your closest friends and confidants and you need to stand on the promises of God when 599 are saying, go in the other direction. Maybe, just maybe, you have uh, some really close friends where it's really, really easy for the tongue to get loose and you start gossiping or slandering other people. And you know in your heart of hearts, like, I don't want to be the person who has to name this. Maybe I just won't say anything. Maybe I'll just be a silent observer. I won't engage in it. Or maybe, just maybe, there needs to be one person in that place who says, hey, guys, I don't think this is right. I don't think this is becoming of Christian men and women for us to do this. What keeps us from doing that? In that moment. Is it not the fact that we want to be well liked by our peers? We don't want to be that odd person out. We don't want to be ostracized or triangulated to. Maybe we don't get invited the next time they have their little powwow. We don't do that because we don't want to be misplaced. We don't want to be pushed out. And so it's so easy to jump in with the crowd. But David doesn't. He sharply rebukes his men. As difficult as it is. And then here's the third way we do this with God. It's when we're tempted to engage in scripture twisting. Scripture twisting. Where we spin God's word to make it say what we want it to say. Look again at the end of verse 4. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now there's just one problem with that sentence. God never said that. Oh shoot, that's always so tough when those things happen. God never said that. But here's what's really interesting. God did make two promises to David. The first one is when Samuel shows up and he anoints David as the future king of Israel. And the second one is the repeated promise of God when he says, I will put the kingdom into your hands. So here's what you have to see. 600 of David's closest friends and confidants have just presented him with what I'm just going to call a a 90% truth. And instantly, you should be reminded of Genesis chapter 3. The very first time humanity fell into sin, it was immediately after not one, but two partial truths stated by the evil serpent. Two statements that were so close to true, but were totally false. It was not a scripture denying, but a scripture twisting Did God really say, don't you know that if you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will know the difference between good and evil? All that's true. You will be like God. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. It is a denial of the essence of the character and the trustworthiness of God. And in this instance, we have people who are motivated to go back to their families for things to return to the way that they are. They have an opportunity, seize it, David, and they twist scripture for it to say what they want it to say. And yet, David, here's here's the amazing witness of David. He's not tempted to follow through on his own personal desire for revenge or the pressure to conform. To his closest friends and confidants, or the temptation to do what is right in his own eyes. He only wants to put his trust in God. And so I think there's two ways we're tempted to do this. The first one, which we've talked about already, is just a blatant denial of Scripture or the twisting of Scripture. But there's a second way that I think we're tempted to disobey God it's when we disagree not with God's word, but with His timing. Have you been there? I I trust that God's promises are true. I just think he needs a little bit of help to follow through on this. Think about the story of Abraham and Sarah. They receive a promise from God that you will bear a son even in your ripe old age, even in your 90s. They say, God, we trust in you. Maybe God needs a little bit of help because God's taken his sweet old time for this to happen. Maybe we need to take matters into our own hands. So what do they do? They take another woman. And then Abraham sleeps with her. They have a son. God says, that was not my plan. That was not my plan. Wait on my timing. Trust in my word. Wait on my timing. And I think especially for Christians especially for most of the people in this room, you might say, I totally trust God's word. I'm just really frustrated with his timing. Would you hurry up already? Would you see this through? Would you help fulfill these promises in due time? And I think that we struggle oftentimes with the timing of the God that we serve. And so here's the key question. That God is asking of David, that I think he's also asking of every person in this room and everyone who's watching. God asks, Are you going to trust me or not? Are you going to trust me or not? So here's the heart of David He says, Do I want to be on the throne? Yeah, of course I do. Do I want to stop running for my life? Of course I do. Do I want things to return to the way that they were, where I'm not experiencing the dark night of the soul? Of course. And yet, I will trust God's word, and I will trust God's timing. I will trust God's word, and I will trust God's timing. It is up to him to fulfill his promises. And it's really remarkable to me, in the midst of David's faithfulness, you would think that God is going to reward this faithfulness, right? Isn't that the way that God works? That if we do good, he'll do good to us, right? Isn't, isn't that sort of the, the way that we experience things? Here's how the story goes. Verse 17. David approaches Saul. He says, I got the hem of the garment. I could have killed you. And then Saul says, You are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you have treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe them out or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. That's good news. It seems like everything is working out. But if you keep reading for the next two chapters, guess what? Saul has a change of heart. Just like Pharaoh in Egypt, who lets all the Israelites go, eventually Saul says, why did I let him go? He is a threat to the kingdom. I got to go get him. And he goes after him again, and he tries to destroy his life. And it's interesting, David is going to have repeated opportunities to take Saul's life again and again. Three tests, not one. Three tests to do exactly the same thing, and he doesn't take it. Because again, he understands the principle. I will trust in God's word. And I will trust in his timing. That's what we see from the story. So here's what's really interesting. Even in the midst of God's faithfulness, and even in the midst of David's trust in God's faithfulness, things go from bad to worse, not better. And so for those of us who have this idea that you know God helps those who help themselves, I just want to let you know that's in your Bible in Never Written Chapter Six Verse 2. Might want to write down that reference and find it later. Okay, that's not that's not the God that we serve. What he's looking for, what he's after is our faithfulness. And the promise isn't, I will make your circumstances better if you are faithful to me. The promise is, I will be with you in the deepest, darkest valley. And I will use the difficult circumstances of your life to bring about my glory and your good. That's the promise. That's the promise. And that's exactly what David experiences. Now, I think, I think this is the problem with this story. Oftentimes, when we read the story of David, most of us here, we know how the story ends. So we're kind of like sitting on the bleachers, right? Looking down below at the game playing out, and we see David, and he's struggling. And we might be tempted from the stands to say, David, everything works out. Carry on. It'll be okay. Eventually, you'll become king. Just hang on to God's promises. And yet, let me ask you, do you have the same perspective in your own life? Do you have the same perspective with respect to where you are right now in the experiences that you are currently facing? It's so easy for us when we look at stories that are kind of wrapped up in a bow and to say, well, God's faithful, God's faithful. And yet what God is looking for is for you to trust in him, to trust in the faithfulness of God in your past To see you through in the midst of the difficult circumstances of your present. Do we trust God like that? Are we willing to put our trust in him? So here's the question that I want to ask you. We'll take just a couple minutes to explore it and then I'll close. How could you possibly have the courage of your convictions to trust God like that? To have full and complete Trust in God in the midst of the difficult experiences that you face. I shared with you that in the story, David experiences not one but three tests from the Lord where he could vastly change his circumstances overnight and he could forego the suffering. He could forego all the difficult circumstances and he could take the throne instantly and yet he doesn't take it. But here's what I want you to see. David's story is simply a foretaste of an even greater story in your Bible. Years later, a better David will come along and he will experience some of the same circumstances of David. Jesus, the son of David, when he is born into the world, just like David, there will be an evil king who is out to destroy his life. And just like David, Jesus will go out into the wilderness, and not once, but three times he will be tested. Three times he will have the opportunity to vastly improve his circumstances. All he has to do is to put his trust in himself and not in the faithfulness of his father. And if he doesn't, even by the third test, Satan says, if you bow down to me, I will give you the whole kingdom. You can be king of the universe. All you have to do is to deny your calling to go to that cross and to follow me. And he says no. Just like David, some of his closest confidants, his closest friends, when Jesus says, the son of man must go to the cross, they say, surely not, Lord, surely not you. And Jesus has to sharply rebuke them and say, "No." I have to walk through the valley. I have to go to the cross. All the stories of David are a foreshadowing of the true and greater story of Jesus and his faithfulness to you and to me. The only way that we are going to be able to put our trust in God in the midst of the difficult circumstances that we face today is if we have a picture. Of Jesus' faithfulness on the cross yesterday. That he was faithful to you. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of Jesus, he died for us. He was faithful to us. And if he was faithful in that, I promise you, he will be faithful in your circumstances. He will see you through. For those of you who are really interested in connections in, in the Bible, I invite you to jot down Psalm 57. Many scholars believe that this is the psalm that David wrote while he was in the cave of Engedi. I want to read just two verses to you. I want you to see the foreshadowing of Jesus. These are the things that David was experiencing when he was having his dark night of the soul. He says this in verse 2. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. And here's what's really interesting. Jesus also cries out. Here's the difference between David and Jesus. Jesus cries out, but he gets no answer. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then David in verse three, he says this next. He sends from heaven and saves me, not knowing that Jesus would be complete fulfillment of that promise you have the eyes to see you have the ears to hear that Jesus has fulfilled the promises that he has made Jesus has never broken a promise and so as you enter into 2024 and you got the baggage with you you got all that baggage, the suffering, the experiences that you're bringing along with you on this ride. You have the promise of Scripture that he will be with you and he will not forsake you. How can we have the courage of our convictions that Jesus is, in fact, trustworthy in the midst of our difficult circumstances? Only when you see the cross for what it is, the fulfilled promises. Of God. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through 1st and 2nd Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.